Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. Thank you guys for tuning in on this wild impeachment week. Couple things. Ben is on the road. So my co-host today is Kelly Magsman. You guys have heard her on the show before. She's the vice president for national security at the Center for American Progress. She's an Iran expert. She's a defense expert. She's awesome. And I was so glad I had her today because of the issues we touched on, which included Trump attempting to extort the government of Ukraine for dirt on Joe Biden. Trump's speech today at the UN General Assembly, the latest on Iran and whether Trump will meet with the Iranians, Trump's troop deployment to Saudi Arabia. We talked about the Israeli elections and then the latest on the protests in Egypt, which bubbled up over the weekend and was pretty amazing. Also, as part of that conversation about Ukraine, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan dialed in. She published an op-ed today with six other freshman Democratic members of Congress who have national security backgrounds about why they believe these latest allegations about Trump extorting the government of Ukraine for dirt on arrival may be an impeachable offense. That op-ed really signaled that so the dam had burst when it comes to impeachment, and it was really important to get her perspective just minutes after she left a caucus meeting with Nancy Pelosi. Finally, we will hear part two of the Crooked Media Conversations with Samantha Power, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. If you haven't listened to part one of a conversation, uh, it was on Pod Save America Monday. John Favreau and I talked to Sam about her new book, what it's like to be a parent in national security, her early days as like a cub reporter in Kosovo. Uh, Samantha is smart. She's funny. She's awesome. It was like one of my favorite interviews we've done. And then the second part of it was just me and Samantha, and we dug more into some foreign policy issues. We talked about Syria. We talked about the use of force. We talked about what she learned over time and what it was like to be in these situation room meetings for the first time when you realize like, oh shit, these are the people that are actually going to make the decisions that are going to decide the course of US foreign policy. So it was a really great conversation. I think you will love it. Before we get to the news, just two quick things. First, make sure you check out our brand new podcast, America Dissected with Abdul Sayed. Abdul is a doctor and a public health expert. He ran for governor actually in Michigan. Uh, he's going to cover issues like the anti-vaxxer movement, why goop has such massive appeal in our healthcare system. Abdul is just the best. He's smart. He's funny. He talks like a human being. You are going to love this show. I learned so much from the episodes I listened to already. So subscribe today to America Dissected with Abdul El Sayed. Also, Ben and I are going to do a live podcast at J Street's October 26th National Conference in Washington, D.C. We'll talk with activists and policy leaders about the U.S.-Israel relationship, and we're going to talk about ways we can just all push for more diplomatic solutions to global problems and less militarism in the world. Go to jstreet.org slash podsave to get a ticket and to join us. I promise you, you'll have a good time. Okay, with that, let's do the news with Kelly Magsman. Kelly, thanks for doing the show again. It's great to have you back. <laughs> it's great to be back. So let's start with Ukraine. So 
Last week on the show, Ben and I talked about Congressman Adam Schiff's really stunning letter to the Director of National Intelligence about uh, this, uh, the illegal refusal to forward along a whistleblower complaint. Uh, thanks to some great reporting by the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, we now know that that whistleblower complaint that came from the intelligence community discusses a July 25th phone call where President Trump allegedly pressured the Ukrainian president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, to manufacture an investigation into Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. Uh, the week before this call with Zelensky, Trump instructed his chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, to freeze nearly $400 million in military aid for Ukraine. That was money that had been approved by Congress. So on top of that, the State Department has been setting up meetings for Rudy Giuliani, Trump's personal lawyer, to pressure these Ukrainian officials. Uh, Vice President Pence was over uh, meeting with Ukrainian officials and pressuring them about corruption, which obviously would be interpreted as crackdown on Biden. Uh, Trump personally canceled or refused to schedule several meetings with this brand new Ukrainian president as part of this extortion racket. So uh, it's hard for me to imagine this being more blatant. Just a, a quick reminder of the context here. In March of 2016, Joe Biden pressured the government of Ukraine to fire its top prosecutor. The reason he did that was because that prosecutor was not doing enough to fight corruption. The prosecutor himself was seen as corrupt. And this was not just us uh, who believe this. This was the view of the European allies, the IMF, the World Bank. Uh, you know, and Biden wasn't just freelancing here. Like it was the consensus view of the U.S. government that this guy had to go. It went through the standard NSC interagency process, which means all the top people in government signed off on this. This you know, wasn't something Biden did on his own. It was no secret. Um, the latest as of this recording time, uh, Congress just voted to release this whistleblower complaint to the Intelligence Committee. Trump says he's going to release an unredacted transcript of his call with Zelensky. Um, the whistleblower might testify before the Intelligence Committee. So, Kelly, this is already exhausting. Let's pause there. <laughs> um, maybe you and I could do like the step back here. How yeah. important do you think this money is and, and generally uh, support from the United States for Ukraine? Well, I think it's very important. Uh, the Ukrainians, of course, you know, the Russians uh, annexed Ukraine's Crimea region in March of 2014. And ever since then, the Ukrainians have been involved in a uh, in a in a war, basically a fight uh, with the Russians uh, for control of Ukraine, and so this assistance, security assistance, it's mostly you know arms, but also other uh, sort of financial assistance has been essential for Ukraine to be able to st step up and and push back on the Russians. So this is a big deal. Um, it's a big deal to the Ukrainians. Uh, this is no small amount of money. Uh, we're talking about about two hundred and fifty million dollars for the Pentagon program, their security assistance program. We're talking about one hundred and forty million dollars in what we call foreign military financing, and so that's big money um, for yeah. the Ukrainians. So it's really important. I mean, it's a huge uh, dimension of our foreign policy towards Russia right now, uh, frankly, is to try to help the Ukrainians uh, push back. So so there's lots of angles to this. Of course, there's the Russia angle with, with Trump. Um, there's also, of course, now the, this new latest twist and turn. Um, and I have to tell you, as a, as a national security, uh, former national security official, I am just astonished <laughs> that the president of the United States essentially uh, is trying to bribe a foreign power to look into a political opponent using yeah. the instruments of American foreign policy. That is that is deeply profoundly wrong, um, and it should be obvious, I think, to everybody. Putting aside all of the Biden stuff or the corruption or whatnot, that's just the basics of what's going on here. Yeah. Um, and so that 
you know, in my mind, that opens the door for, you know, other countries to start investigating Donald Trump's political opponents to try to find dirt to help uh, President Trump. And that is hugely bad if, if it's the Chinese or the Russians or the Philippines or whatnot uh, trying to, you know, essentially bend their uh, policies towards Trump um, and using their you know, law enforcement intelligence mechanism to go after American citizens at the president's encouragement. So this is this is profoundly bad from a national security perspective, putting aside all the politics. Yeah. I mean, and so like the decision to send this money to Ukraine or to send arms to Ukraine is not an uncontroversial one, right? I mean, Obama actually opposed sending more arms to Ukraine several times back uh, when he was president. This really upset people like John McCain and Lindsey Graham. And so when I was reading that Trump reportedly thought that sending more arms to Ukraine was ultimately meaningless because we would never get them to military parity with the Russians, but it would really piss off Putin. I was like, okay, I understand that rationale. Um, I I can see where he's coming from. But frankly, that made the ultimate decision to just green light all this money even more confusing. Because if he thinks it's bad policy, if we know he has this history of really never going against what Putin wants, and Putin sure as hell doesn't want $250 million plus dollars worth of arms uh, going from the US to Ukraine, the fact that he would suddenly flip on this is weird. It's surprising. It's very weird. (laughs) It's very weird. Um, And that, you know, he reportedly actually personally engaged uh, with Mick Mulvaney at the OMB to put a hold on the money. So this is all very strange. Um, And what's interesting is, you know, Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, Senator Graham, a number of other Democratic senators, in addition to Republicans, had, you know, basically pushed back on the White House hold. So this is a bipartisan view that this assistance is essential for Ukraine. Um, so for the president to kind of single-handedly, you know, reach down into the budget process, especially the foreign assistance budget process that, frankly, he doesn't pay much attention to, to suddenly insist on a, a hold being placed, I have lots of questions. <laughs> yeah, me too, Kelly. Um, so let's talk about this transcript for a minute because, yeah. look, I haven't worked in the White House since 2013, but but back in the day when Obama would make a foreign leader call, my memory of how it works is the White House Situation Room would basically route the call from wherever, like the, the outgoing number to, let's say, the country's Ukraine, through the sit room up to the Oval or wherever the president was to take it. And they would basically listen to the call and like type out a, a, a transcript that wasn't verbatim, but was pretty close as fast as humanly possible. I don't know if that's still how they make transcripts these days in the White House. And I never knew if we recorded the call or not. I imagine in this case, the folks in Ukraine are recording the call. Uh, If a call is going to Ukraine, I'm sure the Russians are recording it through surreptitious (laughs) means, maybe the Chinese, maybe the French, like the list goes on and on. But like, what do you, what's your sense? Like, do you think that's how it still works? And if so, I mean, will this transcript tell us everything we need to know? Well, I hope that it still works that way. I mean, as you recall, you know, the Situation Room would put together that that transcript. And then, of course, it would go to what we call the suite, which is the National Security Advisor's office for a review. And so the National Security Advisor would get to review the transcript and make sure that everything was correct. Um, so I'm hoping that process still exists. Um, I assuming, I'm assuming it does, given the nature of the whistleblower complaint. I do think that it's important to remember that a transcript, it may not yield all the information. Um, and so I think the the aspect of having the broader complaint th- from the whistleblower themselves, there could be additional things beyond this specific phone call. Um, in fact, there is actually two phone calls. They made President Trump made two phone calls hmm. to Zelensky, one on April 21st, an introductory call, 
and then the July 25th call. So there's huh. actually two calls Good point. <laughs> out there. Um, so I think it's important to get all the transcripts of the engagements with the Ukrainians, but also whatever the nature of this whistleblower's <clears throat> complaint is. And I just want to say one other you know, big thing, stepping back. The fact that we have a whistleblower, thank God for them. Yeah, truly. <laughs> you know, th- this person, whoever it is, is a hero <laughs> in my view because they followed the rules. They went through the process. They didn't try to go around the process. This isn't Edward Snowden or or any of that. This is a true, serious complaint that was validated by the inspector general of the intelligence community, and they deserve a lot of credit. And there's going to be a lot of pressure on them uh, in the coming days and weeks. Yeah. Uh, Kelly, so yeah, I totally agree with you. The Congress needs to see this transcript. We need to see the whistleblower complaint. But I also want to know what support the State Department provided to Rudy Giuliani as he's gone over to Ukraine to try to push for this investigation into the Biden family, right? Mike Pompeo was on the Sunday shows this weekend, and he's such a petulant asshole that he refused to talk about whether or not the State Department had helped uh, Giuliani in his efforts. But Rudy's out there on, as recently as last night on Sean Hannity saying the State Department was setting up calls and meetings for him. I mean, one, how unusual is it in your view for the State Department to set up meetings and calls for a private defense attorney like Rudy Giuliani. Uh, And if they did do this, I mean, don't you think we should figure out what kind of funding or support went behind these trips? Absolutely. It's very strange. Uh, I worked at the State Department as well. I do never recall setting up meetings, official meetings for any American private citizen. Um, And so there are a lot of questions around that. I also think it's interesting that uh, Giuliani decided to go to Ukraine in May, shortly after the first call uh, that President Trump had in April. So there's lots of questions I have around this whole thing. And the fact that uh, that Mayor Giuliani is out there uh, speaking to this pretty openly, I think um, I think it's interesting. And I think there should be lots of questions the Congress asks Secretary Pompeo uh, about the nature of that. Also, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, uh, a career official, was unexpectedly recalled Hmm. Uh, shortly after uh, the first congratulatory phone call. Um, And so I also have questions around that. So what is the connection between uh, the recalling of that ambassador, Giuliani's trip, the phone call? Um, You can just sort of lay it. This this looks like it might have been going on for quite some time. Man, what is going on here? Okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have my conversation with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin about why this latest incident with Ukraine actually made her decide that we may need to impeach Donald Trump. And then after that conversation, Kelly and I will keep going through this wild week in the news. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crookedworld. 
Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. On the line, we have Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you so much for, for doing the show on this wild day. <laughs> of course. So this morning started, uh, or maybe it was last night, I read an op-ed that you wrote along with six of your colleagues who are from the military or the intelligence agencies or the Defense Department. You all have national security backgrounds. And you wrote this remarkable op-ed that said, if President Trump withheld security assistance from Ukraine to get essentially manufactured dirt on Biden, that's an impeachable offense. Can you explain to listeners why this latest uh, news of, about Trump was the tipping point for you? Sure. I mean, I really do think for all of us um, who have served, a lot of it really came down to just remembering our oath of office um, that we've taken many, many times before to protect and defend the Constitution. And then we also, of course, took in January um, when we became congressmen and women uh, I think there's two parts to it, and I don't I, I don't think it's very complicated. Um, the first part is that we have the sitting president of the United States acknowledging through his lawyer that he reached out to the Ukrainian government and asked for them to manufacture dirt on a political opponent. Um, that right there, um, separate from the role of security assistance to me, is beyond the pale. And we cannot allow that to be a normal thing. Just imagine a future president... Um, of whatever political party reaching out to China or North Korea and saying, hey, can you help me out? That just cannot be normalized. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would have a problem with that right there. But then if you add to it uh, the second allegation that potentially the president used the leverage of hundreds of millions of dollars of security assistance to, you know, withholding that in order to make sure the Ukrainian government um, passed along some good dirt. Yeah. So to me, those are two parts, both egregious. Um, and it just came to a point for me, since I've been pretty judicious about impeachment, that we have to really forget about the political calculus and do what is necessary to preserve the bones of our democracy. So that's yeah. why I came out. Yeah. I mean, so it, it was an amazing op-ed. It was, you know, it, it was, though, conditional, right? I mean, you said if President Trump did these things with respect to Ukraine, that is an impeachable offense. It seems like since then, Trump has basically admitted doing everything he's accused of. I mean, he's admitted to raising Joe Biden and his son with the Ukrainian president. Giuliani has admitted to pressuring the Ukrainians. This morning, President Trump confirmed that he withheld military aid to Ukraine. He's trying to claim it was because he had concerns about corruption. Then he completely changed his rationale and said, oh, well, we give too much money to them. Like, Donald Trump doesn't know a damn thing about Ukraine. Like, obviously, this wasn't mm-hmm. an issue. He's he's pushing them for this dirt on Biden. Uh, it sounds like, you know, the, the Congress is about to get this whistleblower report. Trump now says he's going to release this transcript with Zelensky. Um, I, I know you just left a meeting with your House colleagues. I mean, has the conditionality of that op-ed changed? Do you feel like the the caucus and you personally are are, are ready to go to impeachment? Um, I'm, well, I think there's people in the caucus who were ready to go impeachment before they were sworn in as congressmen and women. So literally, literally true. I, I think there's, there, I think there's a lot of people who had 
have called for impeachment a long time ago. Um, I think, um, you know, obviously Speaker Pelosi has now come out and said she supports um, an impeachment inquiry. That's obviously a big step. We all met in caucus. Um, and I think me, um, you know, regardless of the mood, regardless of the energy, regardless of how many reporters are swirling around the Capitol, and there's a lot of them, um, it's, it is still important to me that we understand the facts. So mm-hmm. I am open. I think that it, the onus is on the administration to show us how these aren't impeachable offenses, right? If, if you didn't call the, the head of another nation and ask for dirt, well, I guess demonstrate proof that Drew Giuliani uh, was lying for some strange reason. If you did not leverage assistance, uh, security assistance, in order to get that dirt, prove it, mm-hmm. because those allegations are serious. Yep. And we've lost the ability to trust whatever first word the president comes out with. Yeah. Um, uh, how worried are you about the message this sends to other countries like Russia or China that they can get whatever they want from Trump as long as they help him politically or dig up dirt on an opponent. I mean, how do you put this back in the box? Well, I think that's the point of us coming out, especially those of us with a national security background. It's just you can't normalize this. And I think the way that you say to the rest of the world that the United States is not kind of open for business when it comes to political dirt is you actually get serious about pushing back on the the Trump administration. And yes, okay, that can mean an impeachment inquiry. But, you know, we mentioned in our op-ed, we should use all the tools in our toolkit. And if someone is violating the law and refuses to sort of answer time after time, at a certain point, if you're a cabinet level official, you should be held in contempt, right? We have to have rules and norms. And so for me, I think this was the way that we stop just this genie coming out of the bottle, where all our allies and adversaries are thinking of ways to ingratiate themselves with America by providing dirt, um, that we got to send a strong signal now. It has to be organized, clear, strategic. Um, You worked in uh, the national security world and the CIA. Uh, this whistleblower could have been your former colleague. Um, President yeah. Trump is out there attacking this person's patriotism. I imagine it is incredibly scary to be at the center of this political firestorm, knowing that, you know, historically things haven't always turned out well for the people who take these brave actions. What's your message to that that whistleblower today if he or she is listening? Well, I mean, I think... And I thought about this, you know, especially given that it might be someone with experience on Ukraine or Russia in that kind of department that I may indeed know them. And um, all I can say is for the entire intelligence community, they have been beat up by the president pretty much every single week since he took office. Um, and they come to work every single day. They could be paid many, many more dollars by going to the private sector or somewhere else. But they're patriots who do everything they can to protect our country. And the fact that the president, the commander in chief, would be attacking his own intelligence community from the beginning is kind of like the coach of a football team attacking, you know, his running back or his quarterback. And it just doesn't make any sense to do, especially publicly. Um, and so the fact that someone came forward after knowing how this president has dealt with people who have, quote unquote, been disloyal to him is extremely brave. It's also extremely rare. The intelligence community prides itself on being bipartisan. Right. When I was in the CIA, really, the Hatch Act governs our life. You do not practice politics in the workplace. You don't even talk about it at all. I never knew what people's political affiliation was because it was so taboo to talk about politics in the workplace at CIA or at the Pentagon. So the fact that this person has come out 
has been engaged um, in a, such a high-profile way that felt compelled enough to do this is very rare. And I just I hope that they know that they're they're doing the right thing by coming forward. We need to see the full whistleblower report. I mean, we need to understand the seriousness of it. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to read that uh, that football comment as a attack on Jim Harbaugh? Well, you know, I represent Michigan State, so oh, I'm I actually sorry. have no problem attacking Jim Harbaugh. I mean, not attacking, but making fun of or teasing or poking at um, University of Michigan. I will say their show last Saturday might make them slightly joke-worthy. But um, uh, we always love our Michigan teams as long as we're not in-state in the Michigan-Michigan State. Game. Right, right. Go Buckeyes. Just kidding. Bridge too yeah, far. No, um, Lou. Go green. Go green. Uh, final question, and thank you for allowing me to be an idiot on a serious day. Uh, you're a member of Congress. You used to work in the intelligence world. I think you probably spent a lot of time thinking about uh, how foreign countries react to things we do. I imagine that most countries are used to the U.S. having these brutal, divisive political debates, but it does feel like we're at a whole new level of just disarray and dysfunction. Does that worry you at all? I mean, I I sometimes think that our adversaries could look at how broken our political system is right now and think we can do whatever we want because there's no way that this country is going to come to a consensus and be able to respond. Well, I definitely think we're sort of at a low point for American leadership in the world. That's for sure. Um, And that, um, just worries me greatly as someone who really believes that America has a special role in the world, that our values are not just American values, they're universal values, um, that you can be anyone from any background and pull yourself up and make something yourself. That's a very um, sort of idealistic worldwide dream that our country represents for a lot of people. And so I want us to be leading from those principled places. Um, To be honest with you, I know that the um, the general foreign policy or establishment sort of laments that we aren't doing what we usually do and wants to hearken back to a different era. And I understand that. But I think we need to accept reality that we have a generation of young people who grew up basically um, without remembering 9-11 or after 9-11. They know us in long entrenched wars that we can't easily get out of. We've invested tremendous blood and treasure in those wars, um, and they see the shrinking middle class and the shrinking opportunities sometimes for themselves. So I I think, frankly, I like to think a little bit um, optimistically beyond President Trump that we may actually have a moment of opportunity when we have a next president to really rethink some of the things um, that have been taken as hallmarks on national security for a very long time. And that doesn't mean violate our norms. That doesn't mean, uh, you know, something crazy. It just means we may want to take an opportunity to rethink some things and not just do it the way we've always done it. And I hope people are thinking about that potential opportunity. Agreed. Uh, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, thank you for doing the show. Thank you for uh, speaking out against this president's corruption. And uh, we will watch this very, very closely. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events.
Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. All right, Kelly, we are back. So Trump's at the UN General Assembly today. Normally... This would be a significant day for an administration. You'd try to advance some sort of foreign policy objective. Uh, but it, to me, it felt like Trump kind of sleptwalked through his speech uh, to the General Assembly today. The delivery was awful, but the speech itself wasn't much better. He essentially attacked the UN as an institution by saying that, quote, the future doesn't belong to globalists. It belongs to patriots. The future belongs to sovereign and independent nations. Uh, a reminder that the UN was set up to help the world do collective, take collective action and prevent wars from uh, you know, states that adopt nationalism. Anyway, uh, he had a litany of criticism for Iran, but he didn't really dig into the recent attack, attack on Saudi Arabia that they've blamed Iran for. Uh, Trump whined about immigration. He complained about social media companies being mean. It was deeply uninspiring. Um, Kelly, did you have any thoughts on Trump's speech today and, you know, anything else? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an interesting day to give a speech. In some ways, it, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it's what I find interesting about the speech is that it was an incredibly uh, unorganized, sort of strange series of conspiratorial rants <laughs> uh, and nationalist uh, viewpoints. I mean, it felt like it was just kind of pulled off of the alt-right <laughs> uh, Twitter. Um, it was actually very depressing in some ways because it was a small speech. Um, it's very clear that President Trump and many in his administration – uh, don't see value in the United Nations. They don't see value in multilateralism. This is all about America first and nationalism and sovereignty. And it's interesting to me because this is the house that the United States built, you know, mm -hmm. and we're, we're essentially walking into it and burning it down. Um, and so I, I think it's it's it was a sad um, state of affairs today. I suspect I'm going to predict that if President Trump is not impeached by next year and is still around, <laughs> that he doesn't go back to the United Nations ever again. Yeah. Um, I just feel like this is a each year it feels like the speech just gets worse. Right. It was like fire and fury. Remember that one? Mm -hmm. uh, and then last year's kind of weird one. I can't even it was so bad. Also on the nationalist front, it was the Stephen Miller speech last year. This year seems to be like Stephen Miller light, like Stephen Miller maybe like took a nap or something. <laughs> um, so it's just it's a sad sort of retreat from <clears throat> the global stage that we're we're watching in real time. Yeah. I mean, Stephen Miller is just a terrible speechwriter. It, it is so funny. Like, look. The the UN is a flawed institution. There there are a lot of things. I don't they know do. what you're talking about. Yeah, there's a lot of things they do uh, that uh, are unhelpful at best. Uh, it can be destructive at worst. But it, it was set up with a whole bunch of rules and procedures in place. That is, they're incredibly advantageous to the United States. I mean, the fact that we're on the Security Council and and have a voice in every single significant vote means you'd think you'd want to preserve institutions that are constructed like that. Yeah, 
I mean, you would think. <laughs> you would think. Especially when we're looking at, you know, an increasingly competitive world where China is getting more influence, both economically and security-wise, um, to sort of take a, a back step and, you know, not utilize one of the biggest assets that we helped create is is amazing to me. My favorite parts actually were, must have been the Ivanka Trump <laughs> inserted like three lines about women's rights and championing the roles of women and uh, LGBTQ rights. And I just wanted to like, I just wanted to hover outside my body because mm-hmm. it's like the exact opposite of what the entire administration is doing, whether it's the child separation policy on the border right. um, or the rollback, the trans ban uh, at the Pentagon. I mean, it, it's just as if uh, you know, she just sort of inserted some nice lines in there that are completely un- untrue. <sighs> just exhausting. Um, you know, often at the UN General Assembly, you know, the, the speech is sort of the main messaging event, but you get a lot done on the margins through one-on-one meetings with foreign leaders, or you bring a group of people together to ad- advance some sort of common interest. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not Trump might meet with President Rouhani of Iran while both of them are in New York. Kelly, you spent years and years working on Iran policy. Where do you land on whether it would be a good idea to for Trump to meet with Rouhani? <laughs> oh, man. Um, Not an easy know, one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I, first of all, I think that well, Rouhani's book is actually going to go on Fox News, apparently, later huh. today, um, wow. which is a slightly strange thought in my mind. <laughs> but Jeez. I want to watch that one. Um, so that's interesting. I find that interesting. Um, I think that Donald Trump is just absolutely desperate to have a meeting Mm -hmm. with this guy because all Trump cares about is the, the sort of perception that he's doing better than Obama on foreign policy, whether it's on Iran or North Korea. It doesn't matter about the substance of what's occurring. I think, um, he's looking for a way out. He has backed himself into a corner, uh, on the Iran issue. Like the only option he has left is, essentially military action, which is something he is, you know, clearly doesn't really want to pursue or more economic pressure, which at this point, Iran's already under such tremendous economic pressure. There's not much more space to go. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's part of what's generating the instability in the region in the first place. So the only place he has left to go and to give himself a way out is diplomacy. And I suspect that the Iranians are... uh, not the North Koreans in this regard. They are much more complicated politically. I think they uh, have less incentive uh, to engage with Trump directly. That said, <laughs> uh, I think it would be interesting if Trump really was interested in pursuing diplomacy, which I think would be a good idea. Uh, he should consider a, a, a broader sort of multilateral approach, whether it's maybe through the Omanis again or maybe some other parties in the region who might want to see a de-escalation of tensions. Yeah. Well, so uh, the elephant in the room in this whole discussion is the recent attack on Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure, which the Trump administration says was conducted by Iran. So in response, President Trump deployed U.S. troops and some missile defense uh, infrastructure equipment to Saudi Arabia last week. I haven't seen an exact number of troops that they sent over, but the Pentagon suggested because it's made up. <laughs> is it really okay? So they they said we're talking like hundreds, not thousands. Yeah, so yeah. so Kelly, I mean, a couple of thoughts. One, curious generally if you think this response is smart or sufficient. But second, an Intel friend or Intel expert friend of mine told me that you know, given all the material and training and defensive weapons we've given the Saudis over the years, they probably should have been able to intercept this attack, and that. He thinks that this deployment of U.S. troops is basically an admission that their military is incompetent and they don't know how to run these systems. So I'm curious if you have thoughts on either of those questions. 
Yeah. Um, well, their their military is notoriously terrible um, and has been for <laughs> a number of years. Um, you listen, I, I think this deployment is a, is a total fig leaf and, and a way for Trump to kind of get out of this uh, situation. So when, Pe- when Pompeo was sent to Saudi Arabia after the attacks, I am 100% certain, <laughs> uh, or I expect, that Pompeo showed up to tell the Saudis, listen, this isn't going to happen. We're not going to war. What do you need to look like the U.S. is providing additional defense to you? What do you need politically to, to sort of save face in this context with the Iranians? And I think they came up with more missile defense, <laughs> uh, maybe more security assistance. Um, and so I suspect it'll probably be about 300 guys uh, and gals um, who are probably sent out there as probably another some sort of patriot uh, battery. But I don't think it's anything necessarily meaningful in the context of what's actually happening between the Saudis and the Iranians. I think it's just a way to look like we sent and did something to defend our our ally in Saudi Arabia. Excuse me, our partner. They're not an ally. Right. Right. Our partners in Saudi Arabia. So, you know, the much harder question is if the Iranians did launch this attack, what might a, a an appropriate response look like? Because you do hear a lot of people saying we need to reestablish a deterrent to prevent Iran from doing this again. Part of me thinks it seems like a deterrent was remaining in the uh, JCPOA, the Iran (laughs) deal, and giving them the sanctions relief that they were promised as part Uh, of that deal. But maybe that's naive. Like, I know these guys are not good actors, the IRGC, the Republican Mm -hmm. Guard. I mean, they fund terrorist groups. They support Hezbollah. Like, we're not Iran fans here on this this podcast. But There are goons, remember? Yeah, there are goons. But, like, you know, we're trying to think of how will we create the best outcome? And I'm not sure what yeah. that should look like. And the recent history seems to suggest that a response from the U.S. that is escalatory might be met with an escalatory response, which no one wants. Yeah, no, um, it's a very good question. And I and I hear this, you know, reestablished deterrence line quite a bit as well. And first of all, it's very hard to have conventional deterrence. That's always been very difficult. Um, but I think it really starts with clear messaging, <laughs> and a clear objective to where the Trump administration is actually trying to go with Iran, they are all over the map when it comes to their strategy on Iran. And so what I see happening is that the Iranians are confused. I see even American officials confused about what our policy is and is not aimed towards. I see our European allies confused. And in the absence of clarity around what we're actually trying to do with Iran, is it are we trying to get them back to the table? Is it that we're trying to contain them? Is it is that is that it's regime change? Without that clarity, none of our allies and partners are going to want to sign up to help us reestablish that deterrence and de-escalate the situation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's been a reason why you know many of our European allies, especially, have not signed up for this maritime initiative because. You know, they could sign up for that one minute, put their people at risk, and then the next minute Donald Trump is flying to Tehran. Right. Um, And so I think that's the biggest, biggest issue. So the Trump administration could be doing the right things. I mean, they met with the Europeans. The Europeans put out a statement this week in New York, uh, you know, pushing back on the Iranians. I thought that was good. So that's helpful. Um, The deterrent stuff, I think, is helpful, even though I think it's useless. Um, But... Again, in the absence of knowing what we're actually trying to achieve, I think that's I think that's the biggest problem. Yeah, very well put. Um, all right, let's talk about the uh, the elections in Israel and give the an update to the greatest extent possible. So, 
When I recorded last week, things were still too close to call. That's basically still true. The Blue and White Alliance, which is led by former General Benny Gantz, won 33 seats. Bibi Netanyahu in the Likud party won 31 seats. They're both still scrambling to cobble together a coalition that can control 61 seats in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, which will mean they get to control government. But they haven't gotten there yet, and they're basically tied in in sort of their efforts so far. Um, Interestingly, a group called the Joint List, which is a group of Arab parties that took third place in the election, threw their support behind Benny Gantz because they want Netanyahu out of there. This is a big deal. It's the first time since 1992 that an Arab political group endorsed an Israeli prime minister. Uh, So the two sides, uh, Benny Gantz uh, and Netanyahu and Likud, are negotiating over possibly having a unity government where the parties rotate who serves as prime minister. But there are some major sticking points, like Benny Gantz saying he won't join up with Bibi Netanyahu as long as he's facing a possible indictment. So complicated factor there because he's facing like three of them. But uh, the final campaign results come in on Wednesday. So the day this is released and then Israel's president, which is largely a ceremonial position. He has a week to pick a candidate who gets first crack at forming a government. Normally, that would be Benny Gantz, and then it would go to Bibi Netanyahu. But it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to uh, sort of pick the top dog in each political party. So the the dramatic move would be if President Rivkin chose a member of the Likud party that's not Bibi Netanyahu to begin the government formation process. So we'll watch and see that. Um, It's notable and interesting to me that Trump hasn't really weighed in to support Bibi since these results came in, which like that's the smart, appropriate response, but therefore it is surprising. It was like the one right thing he's done in like, I don't know, years. I know, I know. So Kelly, lots of drama in Israel. Uh, if you have any predictions about what will happen, be my guest. But um, I think the bigger picture question is, do you think that a non-Netanyahu-led government or a Benny Gantz-led government would look all that different from the current version when it comes to policy? It's a very good question, um, and I and I think it's an important one for folks in the United States to to wrap their heads around. I mean, I think it's also you know Benny Gantz is a former chief of the Israel Defense Forces. You know, on security issues, he's got a very strong background. He actually ran the Gaza operations in 2014, which is an important thing to remember. Yeah. So it's not as if Benny Gantz is you know soft on <laughs> peace and security issues, and in general, you know, within the the context of Israeli politics. You know, security issues have been one area where there's been a significant amount of commonality uh, in terms of sort of the Israeli internal politics. And this election, I think, was as much about rule of law and corruption um, and Bibi himself personally, but also the role of religion and, you know, in the state. There's lots of questions about, you know, secular, the, the sort of secular space shrinking in Israel with the, you know, addition of additional far right, uh, ultra orthodox. So I think. Those were some of the issues that really dominated the election. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, Gantz didn't threaten to annex the West Bank. True. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> um, and I think Benny Gantz would, uh, who has you know practical relationships, security relationships with the Palestinians, is probably more likely to be on board with a, a more traditional approach towards peace process issues. But in the absence of the United States really pushing um, – Israel to take serious steps or anything that accounts for what the Palestinians uh, rightly deserve. In the absence of U.S. leadership, I don't know how much difference it's going to make who's the prime minister. Um, And that's sort of my analysis of where we're headed. So I think that peace issues are going to be largely stuck still 
for quite some time. Of course, I think BB would be far worse <laughs> for peace issues, but um, I don't know how much more traction Benny Gantz is going to have. And he's going to have to make, you know, depending on the coalition that's formed, and if he is the prime minister, he's going to have to make some accommodations across different uh, interest groups as well. So yeah, yeah, that's not a great prediction, but um. <laughs> no, no, but you're right. I mean, listen, I think that the the hope probably among a lot of uh, people on the left in the United States is that if Netanyahu is gone, maybe there is more hope uh, that the Middle East peace process gets restarted and that we could ultimately see uh, a Palestinian state. But they should know that, I mean, Benny Gantz has has talked about, you know, returning Gaza to, to the Stone Age during the Kassid War on Gaza in 2008 and 2009, you know, bragged about the number of Palestinians killed in that war. And, and you know, so th- these guys aren't great on on uh, that policy. I mean, they're, they're both pretty terrible. They're both parties, I think, are far to the right of where traditionally, uh, you know, a liberal in the United States would hope they'd be where the Labor Party once was. So yeah. I think there is there, no there is no left really in, in Israel anymore. Right. It's been. Yeah, it's 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 dark. Annihilated. It's dark. Yeah. It's been annihilated. It's dark so, times. It's so, dark yeah, times. I mean, look, Netanyahu is is corrupt and he is, you know, someone who I think a lot of us dislike personally. He's interfered in uh, U.S. elections in his own way in the past. He is you know, politicize the state of Israel by, you know, taking uh, sides with President Trump and preventing to Democratic members of Congress from entering the country. I mean, there's all there's, the list goes on and on and on. But uh, ultimately, I wouldn't be all that hopeful that we'd be closer to peace is the sad reality. And what, you're not waiting with bated breaths for, for Jared's peace plan? Uh, well, right. I, <laughs> I did forget about that. So hope springs eternal. Um, two more last questions for you. So uh, we'll turn to Egypt. So First, human rights activists are saying that around 500 people are in prison after protests in Cairo, Alexandria, and several other cities across Egypt. Uh, Protesting in Egypt has been essentially banned since 2013 when President Sisi took over in a military coup. And it's hard to overstate just how risky public dissent is, given how Sisi has used lethal force against protesters many, many times uh, during that period. There's an Egyptian man who is now exiled in Spain named Muhammad Ali, uh, no relation. He is credited with sparking this latest round of protests because of daily videos he's posted accusing President Sisi and his team of corruption. Uh, Ali worked as a construction contractor and a part-time actor before leaving the country, and his sudden influence is kind of confusing to everyone, but it seems to have you know, rallied people around a very common feeling that CC is corrupt. Trump, who previously called CC his favorite dictator, uh, praised him during a meeting at the UN General Assembly this week. Uh, Trump said he's not worried about the protests. Uh, Kelly, uh, CC is a brutal authoritarian leader. The underlying economic conditions in Egypt have gotten worse, not better, since he took power. I believe one in three Egyptians live below the poverty line. It does sort of seem like uh, risk notwithstanding, the story of the Arab Spring isn't yet over for Egypt. I think that's right. And I think this is, you know, it's showing that the underlying conditions that led to the Arab Spring still exist. Um, And I think this kind of volatility, whether it's sustained or Maybe it ebbs and flows uh, over a period of years. I think it's going to be something that we're going to we should probably get used to seeing a lot more of uh, in the years to come. I think the Arab Spring, you know, we we both worked on it. I worked on it. Um, did really well on that. Um, <laughs> it it's 
there's something that there's something emerging, whether it's Hong Kong or whether it's Egypt um, or whether it's sort of the climate action movement mm-hmm. of younger generations. I think there is there is something going on where 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 people are finding their voice and are able to find their voice in ways that are unexpected, that catch people by surprise, that catch people in the National Security Council, I'm sure, by surprise. They're yeah. probably having lots of meetings about it. Um <clears throat> And we should get used to that. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was stunned when I saw those first videos of these protesters in the streets because, I mean, you know, there was a a woman took a video, uh, just an innocent woman, I believe in Alexandria, took a a video from her window of Egyptian forces roaming the streets with guns. And one of these guys saw her filming and turns, runs at her, points the gun at her balcony and fires. I mean, Red, that's how dangerous yeah. it is just to be filming the protests, let alone a part of them. But these incredibly yeah. brave people in place after place around the globe are still going out there. And it's, I think it's important for Americans to, to take a real clear-eyed look at that um, and remember what is at stake for us here at home. Yeah. Uh, last question. Uh, so the publisher of the New York Times wrote an op-ed about the growing threat to journal- journalists around the world. And it's really worth reading the whole thing. But part of it jumped out at me. Um, he wrote that two years ago, a U.S. government official uh, called the New York Times. And they said that one of their reporters based in Egypt named Declan Walsh was about to be arrested by the government. And the, the publisher, uh, A.G. Salzberger, writes that you know that call was alarming but fairly standard because they've gotten countless similar warnings over the years. And, you know, Kelly, you and I have worked (laughs) on issues just like this many, many times when we were in government, whether it's, you know, a a journalist or just a citizen who happens to be abroad. But uh, in this case, the official said he was passing the information along without the knowledge or permission of the Trump administration, because they basically intended to sit on it and let the arrest happen. And the Times had to ask Irish diplomats to get Declan Walsh out of the country. So I I just found it to be astounding that you would just knowingly leave an American citizen stranded to get, you know, wrapped up by an authoritarian government like that. And honestly, I also thought that the one thing Trump has really taken an interest in internationally is hostage return efforts like this, because, you know, he gets to share the stage and do a press event and and take credit for something, but they were ready to let a journalist just get picked up. I mean, it's, it's pretty stunning. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's stunning, but I don't know why it's surprising to us. I mean, Trump, on a regular daily basis, goes out and bashes the press, bashes the media, um, acts in ways that are not dissimilar from from President Sisi, with maybe the difference being arresting journalists and torturing them. Um, but, you know, why wouldn't the Egyptians go and pick that guy up? I mean, Trump, they have no sense that Trump would make a big deal about, mm-hmm. deal about it. And it's clear that the Trump administration wasn't planning to do that. So it's it's shocking to me as somebody like you who worked on, you know, securing the release of American citizens around the world in very terrible conditions that this administration and the United States wouldn't at least make a minimum amount of effort. I don't know if the the journalist was an American citizen or not. I think he might have been an Irish citizen. But to make at least a minimum amount of effort to ensure that doesn't happen or to intervene with the Egyptian government to suggest that there might be consequences to that um, – I think is is very disturbing. But I honestly, the way he talks about the New York Times and the Washington Post and the fake news, and uh, I'm sure it's it's music to CeCe's ears. 
Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I mean, to clarify, you're, you're right that Declan Walsh uh, is an Irish citizen. I think that the Salzburger and the Time staff assumed that because they're an American company, because they have a deep, longstanding relationship with the U.S. government that, you know, normally you'd receive assistance. But, man, <laughs> depressing stuff. Nobody's home, man. Nobody's no home. <laughs> it's um, just... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, Kelly, with that, uh, I'm going to say thank you so much for joining today. Uh, it is always fun to talk with you. I learned a lot. I uh, I don't Happy know. Happy impeachment day. Yeah, maybe next, maybe this time next week we'll be starting <laughs> impeachment proceedings. I mean, <laughs> my God, what a difference a week makes. Yeah, no kidding. All right, buddy. Thank you again. I'll talk to you soon. All right, bye. Stick around because after the break, we'll have my conversation with former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne Toast down in Brazil. Smells like anything you think could happen, probably will. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I am honored to have Samantha Power in part two. At ESPN, they call this a car wash when they bring like a very important guest and they make you do like 15 shows. This is our version here. But we're going to ask you about like Syria and Mugabe. Uh, Sam, the book is The Education of an Idealist. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for writing it. Everyone should read it. Everyone should buy it. The Education of an Idealist, a memoir by Samantha Power. Okay, the first question. So we worked together for a long time. And I don't have kids, but a lot of people around us are parents and we're parents. And it, it's this funny, unique thing to be like a national security parent, because I imagine every mom or every dad has to explain, like, what is evil? What is death? But you had to tell your kids what Ebola was. You had to explain the annexation of Crimea to a five-year-old. You would explain who Robert Mugabe is. Is that is that weird? Is that challenging? Is it funny? Like, how did you get through those moments? Well, first, I think there's an open question about whether I did need to do all of that or whether my <laughs> son, years from now on the couch, will be saying, I don't know, I, I, I think I was five, and she was telling me about this 90-year-old dictator in southern Africa and that he was stealing the land and that he was uh, killing his people and maybe that's why I'm dating the wrong girls. <laughs> you know, like, so who knows? But So I, I'm, I'm prepared for that or I'm beginning to brace myself for that. So Declan now is 10. And when I was at the UN, you know, I was coming off four years at the White House. He was born. My water broke probably in a dispute with President Obama over whether we should recognize the Armenian genocide. I can't pinpoint the moment, but certainly that in a two or three hour period around that dispute, I lost. But I had a baby who was born on Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day. And so, you know, all along, I would talk to him even about that, about his birthday and about 
that this terrible thing was done and that we light a candle for these people, uh, just given that crazy mm-hmm. context at the beginning. But after four years at the White House, he's older, he's a little more verbal. We get to the UN. As it happens, I learned that I'm the youngest ever UN ambassador. And just by virtue of that stage in life that I was in, I happened to have, again, a young son and a young daughter who I was still nursing when I got to the job. And that creates some awkward scenes in the book, which I'll <laughs> not um, describe because they're a little graphic. But in Declan's case, you know, he, he, I felt like since I was absent a lot, that when I came home, I wanted to try to humanize what it was I was working on. Mm-hmm. I wanted him to feel like he was part of what we were doing. And, you know, the, I mean, they're all reading about super and watching cartoons about superheroes and so forth. I wanted him to see that we were tr- at least trying to make ourselves a force for good in the world. And But it did lead to kind of, again, scenes that every working parent, I think, can identify with. But the content of the scene is just a little bit different because right. it's a national security right, context. Right. So I'm on a conference call with Secretary Kerry and others talking about a new round of sanctions that we're going to impose on Russia in light of the takeover of Ukraine. And Declan's trying to get my attention. He wants to know the score of the Nationals game. And he's just at me and at me and kind of poking. And, and I'm just like, again, so many parents can relate. They're just like, shh, shh, just let me finish. He's like, it's important, mommy. And I'm like, this is important too. <laughs> this is important, I swear. And then eventually the child gives up. In my case, Declan gives up and he stomps off. And again, every working parent has had a stomp off scene. But in my case, my son is stomping off saying, Putin, 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 Putin. <laughs> when is it going to be Declan, 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 Declan? And that tension. And so I'm laughing on the one hand. I'm trying to focus on the conference call and making my point to Secretary Kerry on the other. But, you know, I just thought better that he at least know the stakes of it. Yeah. And to try to translate aggression also without, like, being completely freaking them out and making them right. have nightmares. But just to liken it to, like, imagine if someone comes into your house and steals your stuffed animal collection and then walks away. Well, that's what Putin's doing in Crimea. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I tried to relate it. He actually, it's funny because he became very interested in the world and we would go around and point to different parts of the globe and we would liken different ambassadors to characters in this amazing book series uh, that we that I grew up on when I was in Ireland and that, and that both my kids grew up on the Mr. Men series. So there's like Mr. Impossible, Mr. Greedy, Mr. Chatterbox. We had a big, stiff competition among UN ambassadors as to who was Mr. Chatterbox. Top one. But then the ambassadors would come over for a reception or for some kind of working dinner at the at the ambassador's residence, and and then my son would be introduced to the Russian ambassador, and I could see he was just about to blurt out, you know, which (laughs) Mr. Men character uh, we had discussed applied to him, and then but then like his diplomatic, his youthful diplomatic instincts kicked in, and he would restrain himself and say, Mommy, I have to talk to you. You know, and then out, outside he'd get a great laugh that this was the actual person from the I Mr. Men that. book. I love that. I, and I also love just the scenes of you and Declan and Cass in the Waldorf Astoria ballroom, just hammering wiffle balls <laughs> up into a chandelier that probably cost 10 grand or something. You're like fishing them out, wondering Serious if anyone's fire hazard. Yeah, I wasn't, again, imagining... John Bolton, one yeah. of my predecessors, no, no, you know, no. with a, like with his glove in the in the big sort of grand living area of the Waldorf no. with his broom, trying to get wiffle wiffle balls out of the chandelier. Probably <laughs> not so much. Uh, so this is all a way of saying this is a very fun book. Uh, it's not all policy, but this is kind of a wonky show. So I'm going to dig into a couple of things. If you have a minute, 
think Absolutely. you do. I do. So <laughs> I think one thing we do, I try to do on the show is to talk about mistakes Obama made and not just defend them because that was my job for a long time and I got I got sick of getting boxed into these conversations. So setting aside Syria, because I think that's a bigger, more complicated conversation, I wonder if there's some obvious mistakes in my mind, like supporting the, the civil war in Yemen in hindsight was a colossal mistake. But I also can't help but think that the Afghan troop surge in 2009, when Obama sent tens of thousands of more troops over there, was also a mistake. Because I'm not sure what core national security objectives we advanced for the United States. I'm not sure what the benefits were to the population of Afghanistan writ large, or if those benefits outweighed the downside of having just even more heated conflict and, and fighting at all times. You know, the counterfactual is impossible to know. Maybe we never get bin Laden. Maybe things unravel and get way worse. But I'm just, I'm curious what you think about that Afghanistan decision with the benefit of hindsight and knowing that we're still talking about having 14,000 guys come home, you know, maybe by the end of Trump's first term. I don't know. Well, to draw first a kind of, if we're going to go wonk, let's go full mm -hmm. wonk. Um, but to, to draw kind of a process lesson that sort of comes to mind uh, out of your question. I mean, it. I wasn't involved in those discussions as the president's human rights advisor, sort of interestingly. I mean, partly like so many people were involved and <laughs> the rooms were very crowded with mm -hmm. opinions. Um, and so I'm not sure had I been steeped in what he was thinking about, what I would have recommended, given, again, the various equities, for lack of a better word. I mean, yeah. girls' education, sort of a baseline level of stability that would allow civilians to avoid harm, but then weighted against the toll on our families, which is, of course, needs to be a dominant factor. And the fact that already by the time we took office, they were on their fourth tours, their fifth tours, and now in some cases, Lord knows. And then the sort of core substantive question of do, will it do any good? Mm -hmm. And can you, and so I'll come back to that. But, okay. the, but the process context, I think, is worth noting, which is President Obama has decided that Secretary Gates will be a holdover Secretary of Defense. You know, our, our chairman of the Joint Staff is a holdover by definition just mm -hmm. because of the tenure. For Bush, yeah. Yeah. And candidate Obama, I think rightly, had said, look, I'm not against all wars. I'm against dumb wars. And I don't think there are many who dispute the need to have gone into Afghanistan in the first place, given the safe area that al-Qaeda had established for itself. And I don't think anybody could dispute that the, you know, misbegotten, ill-conceived, incompetently executed war in Iraq was a major diversion from Afghanistan. So I guess just to state a couple perhaps obvious points, but I think as the president comes in and he's pulling us out of the economic chaos, you know, again, the, the depths and the gravity of which is even hard to put our minds back in that space mm -hmm. of how many jobs we were being hemorrhaged each yeah. month. And your top two sort of military advisors, your uniformed military advisor and your secretary of defense are telling you you know, not only we should stay, and that's a baseline thing, but I think we can do real good and put ourselves in a position by, you know, achieving the momentum on the battlefield, getting the Taliban on their back fear or, you know, the terrorists, however, however one was defining sure, the sure. armed groups at that time. And then, Mr. President, we're going to put you in a position, a stronger position to leave. By virtue of surging, we can train many more Afghan security forces you know, the pro the wonky process point is it's hard when you get that advice from people who are so 
uh, connected with our, our soldiers and their families. And, you know, but the problem with that is what Cass would call the sunk cost fallacy, mm -hmm. right? right? That you've already invested so much. And so your t the temptation is always to say, let's just invest a little more yep. so that we can make good on all of the the heartbreak that this deployment has caused, you know, so many Americans. And so, you know, I, I think that it was a, basically it would have been reasonable, I guess, to go in, in any direction. The, the reason I probably would have, had I been in those discussions, been supportive of trying to do Afghanistan, quote, right, even though we'd lost a lot of momentum from the beginning, and yeah. so maybe it was almost too late to make that big difference, is the core recognition that in order to get out we had to have Afghan security forces who could do the job. And the belief that if you surged, it wasn't about even doing more battle, it was about training more people mm -hmm. or making sure that their training was deeper. I mean, so to yeah. remember that it wasn't. And so while it's true that you can look at, here we are 18 years later, and you could ask yourself, what good did the surge do? And we know that the Afghan security forces have not performed at the level that the, our generals expected them to have. I mean, and that was true throughout the, the eight years of Obama's presidency. I mean, there is, as you say, the counterfactual question of how much worse could it be? I mm -hmm. mean, would you have Kabul having been overrun? Right. Would we have an embassy there? You know, would ISIS, which once it grew up in, in Iraq and Syria, did begin to develop satellites, you know, yeah. in Nigeria and Libya and elsewhere and also in Afghanistan, would that have expanded in a manner where even just for core national security reasons of the kind that caused us to go into Afghanistan in the first place after 9-11, maybe that would have brought us back, yeah. you know, as it did. Remember, in Iraq, we had to go back right. to, to be training people to deal with ISIS. And so, I, you know, yeah. again, I don't mean to not have a tidy answer, no, but no, I no. think it's a It's, it's a not confluence. a tidy question. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I was convinced at the time, and I thought it was a compelling argument. But I think the challenge was that the governance piece was never there, right? Like Hamid Karzai was the president of Afghanistan. He was a mess. But also, I think Obama was sold on this idea. Like, there's this great New York Times op-ed that ran maybe last week, written by a journalist who was a Marine who'd gone into Marja. And that was one of those I early... I saw that piece. Yeah, it was and right. devastating. And so yeah. the idea was, okay, these Marines go in and they clear these areas that are Taliban strongholds. And then there was supposed to be something called government in a box, where we sort of created this set of... I don't know, governance structures, services for people that allowed Afghans to take control of this area and then we could hand it over to them. And that piece just, it never materialized, which sort of gets me to a broader thing that I've observed in a lot of our colleagues since we've left, which is a deep skepticism of the ability for the U.S. to just intervene militarily in places and think it's going to be positive, right? Ben often quotes Phil Gordon, who said, like, we intervened in Libya and it was a disaster. We didn't intervene in Syria. It was a disaster. And that's not to be fatalistic, but it, it's, you know, I, I hear that skepticism of military intervention in Ben's voice. I think I hear it in Biden's voice, frankly, when he's out there talking. And that's probably a legacy of the Iraq war as well. But I'm curious where you land on this incredibly complicated question <laughs> after eight Thanks, years Sonic. in government. Yeah. Um, well, first, maybe a, an easy response to a really hard question. I think right now there is that skepticism out there, but there's also a tendency, I feel like, it, in the broader public to conflate U.S. leadership in the world with the deployment of military force. Totally agree. And so that is a problem, yeah, right? Yeah. Because there, indeed, if we don't lead in diplomatic ways, if we don't lead in building coalitions, 
whether to deal with climate change and all the refugee flows and other and conflict that grow out of climate change in addition to all the extreme weather events and so forth, if we don't lead in order to try to deploy our public health experts when there's a big Ebola outbreak here or there, if we don't lead to try to diffuse conflicts peacefully mm-hmm. um, like that in Yemen instead of being complicit in, in war crimes, if we don't lead to try to somehow get the Iran situation and the and the proxy wars that are being carried out between Iran and Saudi Arabia back in the box. I mean, that lack of leadership is going to mean such instability. It's also going to mean that China licking its chops and seeing currently an AWOL America will seek to reshape the international order such as it is yeah. um, in their image in right. a way that ensures that even the baseline norms, however breached they may have been over the last decades, that those norms change and mm-hmm. that indeed there's just a tendency to say whatever you do within your own borders is your business and that's the that's the world order that China wants to shape. So just caution against that conflation. Then you get to the really hard question of when the deployment of military force can make a difference positive to our national security. Can it make alterations to structural challenges and ills in parts of the world that we're not nearly familiar enough with. I mean, you know, it really depends, I think, on what we're talking about. I mean, in Libya, the U.S. led a coalition that averted a massacre of potentially tens of thousands of people. I don't know. Some people think more, some people think less. But and then we were told by the Libyans we don't, you know, thanks so much. <laughs> You've let us live to fight another day, unfortunately, to fight another day, but also to to have a vote and to have mm-hmm. elections and to try to build institutions from scratch. And because of the latent tensions and the lack of institutions in that country, you know, and, and the fact that there was no international presence afterwards, or but maybe if there, I'm sure if there had been an international presence, it wouldn't have made much of a difference given mm-hmm. how deep those fissures were. But fundamentally, sometimes you you have to have also limited objectives, and then it's but it's not going to be a panacea. I still think you know if you talk to most Libyans, they're really grateful that the, that Benghazi wasn't besieged right. and that the other areas where the whole international community came together to say we've got to stop this madman from doing these things. By and large, you know people are very grateful for that. And then they say, well, wait, where were you in the aftermath? And then you remind them and say, well, you said you didn't want international an international presence, and it's very hard to offer uh, the kind of support mm-hmm. that maybe you did need from afar. But but so so there's an example of like, you know, is yeah. there a way to sort of limit? And also sometimes, and I see this with UN peacekeeping a lot, where the U.S. doesn't contribute, but it is worth noting that every day of the year there are a hundred thousand troops from other countries in really dangerous places yeah. like Mali and Lebanon and the Central African Republic and Congo. Again, not solving, the problem is not solving the underlying challenges, a kind of stopgap, finger in the in the hole in the, in, the, in the dike kind of deployment. But nonetheless, again, you ask people on the ground and they're so frustrated that there's not peace, full proper peace, or that they can't move on. But at the same time, they say, please don't let the peacekeepers go because right. sexual violence will be right. rampant, child soldiers will be recruited. So again, there's it really, I think, depends on the circumstance. Um, but I share, um, and it really al- always have, a skepticism that the military, the, especially the U.S. military from so far away, is going to 
be able to crack the code in societies um, that are so foreign to us. And, you know, I mean, that was, I understood that a little bit from having written the book A Problem from Hell because I interviewed so many U.S. officials and they would describe, you know, the limits to our knowledge on the front end. Yeah. But when you're actually in the Situation Room and, and you mentioned Syria and you're debating, you know, should there be a no-fly zone or how do we respond to the chemical weapons attack? And you see these maps and that there's no one often in the room who can tell you who the various factions are, who their right. financiers are, yeah. who their, you know, and it really should breed great humility about what our forces should do. And, you know, we've now moved away from the idea of fighting active combat to more of a, a conception of, again, building local forces up and training them. That's probably, a, from my standpoint, a better course to pursue, but it's itself incredibly risky yeah, because, yeah. you know, very few of these units are clean and we're trying to instill in them respect for international humanitarian law and the Geneva Conventions. And we're, we're starting so late in the, in the lifespan of, of these units or of these militaries. And we've seen that with Afghan forces that commit abuses um, as we've first in the Obama administration and then in this administration roll back ISIS uh, the abuses carried out by forces on the ground, you know, just in lumping people from one sect, uh, yeah. you know, treating everybody like they're an ISIS member. Um, and so that's the peril of this sort of second order approach of of investing in local forces. But the world we want to get to is where governments, you know, of course, respect the rule of law, civilian control over the military, where local security forces respect the human rights of their people, and where outside forces are not needed, you know, in order for them to be able to patrol security and, mm -hmm. and ensure the, the protection of their own civilians. And that's what President Obama really, I think, tried to transition us yeah, to. But then you see in Iraq, when that doesn't work, right. ISIS develops a caliphate. Like, so we get out, right. we think we've trained, they get overrun in a heartbeat. I right. mean, it was like, you know, yes. a knife through butter. And then we're back in the we're back there in a in a training role and in an air support role. And I don't think we can, for all of the skepticism, very <laughs> worthy skepticism, which I share about the use of military force, particularly in the Middle East and and beyond, and areas we don't know, and these lar very large countries with these very complex dynamics. I, I still think none of us look back and think we that we could have afforded to let ISIS continue to expand its caliphate. Right. So then you end up in, in, in this horrible chicken and egg, right? Because yes. we know that terrorists get fuel on one level from the presence of U.S. forces. And yet, if you're the president of the United States and you're seeing these threats to American tourists and airliners and embassies, you really don't have an option of just allowing that, you know, whatever the, the original sin that the terrorists are invoking from their standpoint, you know, you don't have the option of of just allowing those threats to go unmet. Yeah. So. And, and even with the Iraq example, like it gets simplified to troops being there or not. But, you know, you had this you had Syria unraveling and then there's no border and people are flowing across. And it, it, it's complicated, I guess. The <laughs> interval. Look, Syria is sort of the elephant in the room of this discussion of the book. And, you know, reading it, you write a lot about Syria and I can, you know, you agonized over what was happening to civilians. You agonized over the choices. You agonized over the deliberations in the Situation Room, as did Obama, even though he is a lot less public about, I think, that agony. And in fact, you know, you 
talk about how you believe that sometimes he can be defensive about the things that he's agonizing about the most. But, it, you know, at the end of the book, you talk about how you believe that Obama uh, should have responded militarily after the chemical weapons use, the so-called red line moment. You talk about uh, you think that he should have mobilized the international community to at least try to put up a no-fly zone in Syria. And I was hoping you could try to take us back to those debates at the time and why you think, with the benefit of the hindsight, that we should have done those things. Well, I write the book in a manner that I try at least to bring people into the Situation Room. I mean, both you and I were new to the Situation Room when we first arrived. And it really is the case that, you know, when an issue comes to the president, as what we, he used to call it, a turd sandwich, a turd sandwich with a side of fries. God, you I, know, hated that. I hated that too. I think that was Dennis McDonough's <laughs> contribution to the lexicon. But, <laughs> thank um, you, Dennis. Thank you, Dennis. But to be in the room and to be weighing, on the one hand, you know, the latest chemical weapons attack against civilians in Syria, because remember the one that everybody remembers where 1,400 people were killed was on the heels yeah. of many much smaller uh, chemical weapons attacks to which we we responded, yes, but in a, in a kind of, in a discreet way where no one was really aware of our response. And therefore, the, there was a perception that the red line that Obama had set had been crossed without a response. And therefore, I think it's fair to say that Assad felt that there wouldn't be consequences, and therefore he staged this attack against 1,400 people. And so after, let's say he gets away with that in quotes, and there is no international response in August of 2013 or thereafter, I mean, he's already showing he's ratcheting up his use of chemical weapons. And so as I looked at that situation from the Situation Room, as Obama did, you know, you're just thinking, this isn't going to stop. I mean, there's, well, why would Assad stop? This is working yeah, for him. Yeah. You know, he's driving the opposition back on its heels. He's killing a lot of civilians. And, of course, Assad just judges anybody who happens to live in a certain part of the country as opposition and brands them a terrorist, even if they've never picked up a gun or or even if they have a, a completely moderate ideology. He doesn't care. He's just going to kill more and more people. And so, the but the strategic consequence of that weapon being at large in the region and very quickly, as we know, beyond, right, once it starts to spread. Mm -hmm. We already knew that there were terrorist groups who were being recruited to come to Syria. So the question of what would happen if those chemicals, you know, fell into the hands of the wrong actors. And then we already had the refugee flow into neighboring countries. And, you know, for all of the deliberations, none of us foresaw we foresaw refugee flow and we forced, we've, everybody talked a little bit about spillover and what would yeah. it mean for Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey, but nobody foresaw the mass migration no. and, and potentially changing the, the face of European politics, right. changing the United Kingdom's relationship to the European Union, at least you know one, one factor, maybe that mass and uncontrolled migration right. of 2014, 2015. So, but we knew that they, or at least I, I felt strongly that there were going to be strategic consequences that went beyond even the the devastation that Syrians were experiencing. So you have all that on one side of the ledger, which is the kind of leads you just to do something, do something, right? right. right? But that doesn't tell you what to do and how when you take some step, you keep it contained in a manner that doesn't lead you, you know, entangled in a conflict that, again, all of us had great humility about what we could do about the underlying sources of that conflict. It was really more of a question of can you convince this monstrous leader to stop using this one weapon that mm-hmm. has all these other knock-on potential knock-on effects. And so what I say in the book is 
I, I show, I think, you know, and it, there's a bit of revisionism really about this moment in 2013 where people remember Obama, you know, kind of getting squeamish about using military force. And that really wasn't what happened. I mean, I mean, as I show in the book, he was very firm, much, much firmer than I expected. I expected some big debate, right? Because he had so not wanted to mm-hmm. use military force. And yet, as soon as that attack on 1,400 people happened, he said, you know, I want my targets. I'm going to do this. He told me, as I tell in the book, go get the weapons inspectors out of Syria. I don't want, you know, any yeah. humanitarian or UN, the risk of hostage taking and so forth. And what happens is, the UN decides to keep its inspectors on the ground in Syria to look into the new attack. Mm-hmm. That was, I think, not the right decision on the part of the UN, even though it sounds, it stands to reason that they would do that. It sounds like such a such a wise thing to do, and why, how could we possibly disagree with that? But they had no mandate to look into who used chemical weapons, and the whole Russia, right. Syria, everybody agreed that sarin had been used. Yeah. But the only dispute was on the thing that the inspectors had no mandate to look into. So the whole thing was crazy. But they kept them there, and the clock ticked, and the week wore on. Someone in our Situation Room meetings leaked the targets to the Wall Street Journal. What? Um, You know, so as you're going, it's kind of looking like that's crazy, but not, I suppose, I mean, (laughs) not not the first time it's happened. I didn't remember that. That's just Yeah, crazy. And then David Cameron, with all of his renowned strategic foresight, (laughs) decided to go to the British Parliament and, you know, in a preview of his ingenious decision to hold a referendum uh, on Brexit, he goes to the Parliament and he gets snubbed. And so suddenly... Already we're in a situation where Russia's saying, oh, they didn't do it. It was the opposition and, and you know, lying. And and also in a situation where, and again, this is an important word to the wise mm-hmm. for the future, we t- tend to think, oh, well, Barack Obama took over and he had such credibility with the international community. When the Barack Obama says the Syrian government carried out this attack, that's going to move people because he has that credibility. But it turns out people don't forget what's happened in the previous administration, that whole Iraq thing, you know, both on the intelligence question and the factual predicate, but also on how military force in the Middle East tends to go down. Mm -hmm. And so over the course of just that four or five days, you start to really see public opinion turn internationally away from, you know, such revulsion at what the Assad regime had done to real questions, the same question Obama had, of course, which was, and all of us had, which is how do you keep this limited? So in the end, he makes the decision, and, and this I don't think anybody can say proved uh, the right decision. He's already come out and effectively said the world is on notice that we're that he's going to carry out limited military strikes, of, uh, you know, against parts of the Syrian program uh, or par- parts of the Syrian military that have been involved in the chemical weapons attacks, but of course not the chemicals themselves. And so it's it's already a complicated military piece yeah. of business. And But having said that, he then at the last minute reroutes and decides to go through Congress. And what I describe in the book is, you know, not us not having really the insight that we needed for him to make that decision. I mean... Charitable, yes. Yeah. I mean, I was new in my job and I try in the book to show the humanity of all of us in these jobs. I mean, I mean not, not always in a very self-generous way, but but just how human we are. I'm, I'm three weeks into my job and I'm thinking going to Congress, like, you know, Congress needs to take its responsibility and authorize the use of force. And, and the executive should not be carrying out even limited military engagement without that congressional debate. I mean, that's what yeah. our democracy is about. I'm thinking that on the one hand, but I'm thinking 
this is not at the level. I've just come out of our confirmation. Yeah, um, right. But, you know, getting confirmed by the Senate and, and all the posturing and everything, I thought, this is not at the level. Like, is it, you know, he's already announced he's going to do this. What if Congress says no? Yeah. And well, of course he says, like, I will still, you know, proceed regardless. But I look around and I see Chuck Hagel and John Kerry and Joe Biden, and they're all, you know, very angst-ridden about it, but ultimately come down and say, you will get the votes. You know, Israel is very supportive of us doing that. Some of the, you know, very influential groups in Washington are supportive. We will get the votes. And we didn't get the votes. And instead, Obama improvised and... We managed to dismantle the vast majority of the of the chemical weapons program, but but when I look back, and it is hindsight is twenty twenty, but it was a moment where we did expose to the world that uh, pretty much under almost no circumstances were we going to deploy that tool in the toolbox um, in Syria, even in the most limited ways in Syria, and I think. It's very hard to know causality. I mean, Assad was proving himself capable of great brutality, even I mean that, you know, including that that very attack. But it the war did grow so much more savage yeah, after that. You did. did see many more uh, millions of people purged from their homes through the fierce bombardment, and you could just you just could tell that Assad was like, all right, like no one's going to stop me. And so it can both be the case. That in a given instance, all things considered, you know, it's just better not to use military force, but telegraphing that under no circumstances will you ever can also leave you with very little leverage. And while John Kerry and I and others, you know, pounded the pavement to try to use kind of smoke and mirrors to make progress diplomatically and, and from a humanitarian standpoint... In a way, when I look back, I didn't feel this at the time, but, but when I look back, I feel from that moment, it was kind of a chronicle foretold, yeah. you know, and, and that President Putin also sort of sensed our weariness domestically and, you know, on a lot of different fronts was was testing us more and more. And again, whether it links exactly to that moment or just generally what, what our democracy was, was feeling and was telegraphing in other ways, you know, it's hard to pinpoint. But I think looking back, you know, again, to have not given the the stakes on all of those levels to just not be willing at least to try to contain the conflict or to mitigate it in some way, or at least to try to mobilize others. There were plenty of countries saying, criticizing America, saying, oh, red line, look at Obama, you know, feckless. He said he was going to do this and that. And we never really went to a country like Turkey and said, all right, what are you prepared to do? What are you going to do? You know, we'll support you from the sidelines. So there was even a way, I thought, to be aggressive around a no-fly zone and have the United States be part of the planning and this and that, but have other actors carry it out. And again, that wouldn't have been a panacea. That would have been just a place for some number of Syrians potentially to find right. refuge. And some asshole in, uh, in the Republican Party would have said, we were leading from behind again. Yeah, and that's of our debate would devolve into stupidity. Just stepping back even further, because I know we're, we're, we're short on time. You have this great quote in the book from Tom Donilon, who was the Deputy National Security Advisor at the time, went on to be the National Security Advisor, who I think Notice you in a meeting about something you cared about deeply where you hadn't spoken up. Uh, and Tom said to you, hey, you work at the White House. There is no meeting down the hall where these things are going to get decided. This is the meeting. You are the meeting. And I love that anecdote because it did encapsulate the like, oh, fuck moment that anybody who steps into that room feels. And I was wondering if you remember what that meeting was about or remember the first time you stepped into a meeting and felt like an imposter or like there had to be some adults down the hall who were going to figure this out. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, the paradox of being, of operating at the highest levels of government is that 
on the one hand, you're watching the cabinet. I was backbencher, as were you, in the fir- in the first four years, and so you're watching the cabinet debate things. But the cabinet members of the cabinet often are generalists, right? And yes. so often the people who really know the guts of what's going on in a, on a particular crisis, <laughs> scribbling notes, passing yeah, them forward. Exactly, yeah. you're you're scribbling notes and you're passing it forward, and. But it takes some adjustment, right, to note that being on the back bench, you have a responsibility to raise your voice as well. It's intimidating. Yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, and remember, but given my campaign history with with Secretary Clinton and their Secretary Gates, who's you know got a slightly different personality <laughs> than my own. Um, <laughs> Biden's a, going on for ten minutes. Biden's Biden's chatting away. Um, and so to be, you know, excuse me, Mr. President, right. you know, I have something I'd like to add to the discussion <laughs> as a newbie until you feel like you've got the lingo yeah. and you and you also know how to formulate in a way that's, shall we say, adaptive. Um, so, it, you know, the, it's that's why I say, like, I've tried to show the the human dimensions of being in these roles. And, you know, many readers, I think, can identify with being in a different kind of meeting, mm-hmm. right? And thinking to themselves, yeah, what my boss is saying isn't good. <laughs> not so much, you know? And yet feeling like doing the cost benefit in one's head of like, and, and especially women, I think, feel this um, maybe even more than men. And so that kind of imposter syndrome or the intruder alert that one feels. But yeah, and, and Tom, so I, so the way I sort of dealt with this in the early months in the administration is often I would slip a note or after a meeting was over, I would, I would go up and I would say, here, you know, here's just something to bear in mind. And like Tom Donlan, then deputy national security advisor about to be national security, was like, why are you telling me this now? <laughs> you know, like, we just had the secretary of defense, the chairman of the joint staff, the president uh-huh. of the United States in a room, this is important. And I said, well, I just figured somewhere, you know, somebody was bearing this in mind. He's like, there is no other somewhere. You're, you're in the White House. And <laughs> as soon as you realize there is no other meeting, you're the meeting. It'll be the scariest moment in your life where you yeah. recognize that. And it was really, and again, I think it has application, out, certainly outside national security, outside government, of just if something's on your mind. I mean, let me put it this way. When I, I talked to a lot of people as I was writing this book to make sure I was reconstructing things as accurately as I, as I could and not trusting only my memory. And um, across the board, when you ask people, like, are there things you would do differently or are there things you regret? The thing people most regret who I've talked to who are part of our little family, occasionally dysfunctional family Mm -hmm. of of Obama administration people is not what they said or like that they went on too long or that Obama cut them off. Or I mean, I remember those moments definitely for myself. Everybody's regret involves what they didn't say, what Uh they thought about saying. It's a good lesson. And they they sort of left it in their head. And so that's what Donlan was trying to impart is, you know, say it if you've got a mouthful. Uh, my final question, because I want to leave folks with some advice here, and it, but it's going to be super nerdy advice. Um, so it's hard to look out into the world and feel like the trajectory for human rights is good, right? You've got uh, China is locking up millions of Uyghurs in these concentration camps. Sometimes they're beaten, sometimes they're tortured. I mean, it's horrific, right? India just invaded Kashmir, and you're reading reports that Muslims in parts of India are being told that they need to prove their citizenship, or they too will be sent to newly constructed concentration camps or deported. And I don't see a lot of global outrage. And I can't tell if that's because of an absence of U.S. leadership or in that absence, is there something citizens can do to try to fill that void and try to push people in government or at the U.N. or other places to at least just sound the alarm about this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think 
there are a number of things going on. Let's let's do the diagnosis, the, sure. the wonky diagnosis first. I mean, there is a lot of conflict and suffering in the world at present. And I mentioned, or I, I discuss in the book when I go to Bosnia when I'm in my 20s, and the whole world is focused on that single conflict. And then yeah. Rwanda happens, and then attention very belatedly, unfortunately, shifts to Rwanda. But you could kind of get by keeping track of the conflicts here or there. And now with climate change uh, purging people from their homes or forcing them to flee, the natural disasters associated with mm-hmm. extreme weather events and, and all the suffering that ensues, the weakness of various states also and the kind of proxy support different armed groups get within those states, you just see either state kind of erosion, state collapse. You see, of course, terrorism and the proliferation of groups that people can't keep track of. And then, you know, conflicts that just introduce themselves on a given day. And it's it's hard. I mean, it's yeah. hard. I'm a, I'm, I'm a private citizen now. And, and uh, you know, but I remember this from the UN of just one Security Council crisis meeting after another in places that had not been pretty, but had been stable, like yeah. Ukraine, you know, getting added to the list. Nigeria, again, not a major sort of profound democracy, uh, an economic powerhouse. My God, the some... Ebola chapter in this book is like riveting. Well, thank you. We're not going to tell them anything about it. You're going to have to buy it to get that goes up. But holy shit. Maybe. But, Talk about but, a scary uh, meeting. Yeah, well, a scary meeting and, and an example, I think, of catalytic U.S. leadership. Yeah. And that's what leadership has yeah. to look like, right, is we need a team captain. It's a collective action problem that mm-hmm. people face in their own lives. And we don't want China to be the team captain on anything related to human rights and humanitarian issues. I mean, we'd like them to do their share as they did in Ebola. And we they need to be co-captain probably on climate change. But on issues of war and peace, their tendency to neglect atrocities against right. civilians and so forth means that if we're AWOL, that's the most likely candidate to step up and, and take leadership. But we need the U.S. I mean, right now we're absent and we're attacking our allies. And so the democracies of the world are not banding together to contest the kind of autocratic spread or the freedom deficit and the, and the, the, the backsliding even in established democracies, nor are we investing in the diplomacy needed to address a lot of these conflicts. So it's a particular moment now where it just feels like chaos afoot. 70 million people displaced and counting, right? That's how people feel. But at the same time, you know, some really interesting things are happening uh, of late. I mean, you see when China seeks to repress the people of Hong Kong or take rights away that they have lived with for so long, you know, if you're a rational actor in Hong Kong, you might think to yourself, like, shit, (laughs) China's got a big old military. They got big old security forces. Like, uh, you know, I may not have been alive when that Tiananmen crackdown happened, but yeah. my mother was, and I've heard what that was like. I'm going to stay home. Yeah. But that's not what the people of Hong Kong right, are doing. Right. They're saying, we are keeping our rights. We're not going to be part of this global backsliding trend. Even in Russia, where, you know, if you if you could think as, again, put yourself in the shoes of being a Russian citizen, even as the economy uh, stagnates, even as, you know, the demographics in the country are, are not auspicious in terms of the economic growth in the country long term, but if you're, again, trying to figure out how to spend your day, you know, going out and getting beaten up by Putin's thugs yeah. in Red Square, you know, wouldn't be highest on your list <laughs> no, necessarily. No, and yet people are doing it All every time, single yeah. day. And if I if we come back to your question and in this country where the United States is either absent or uh, I think by and large on a whole s- series of foreign policy issues from Iran to climate to 
you name it, doing things that are disruptive to the international order. So far from trying to shore up the international order and deal with these crises, we are a part of compounding them by and large. But even here, as proof, again, that the voices of our citizens matter, and it hasn't borne full fruit yet. It's a little bit analogous domestically to the gun control debate, which is going to bear fruit uh, if we keep at it. But has And you can feel the tipping point either being approached or crossed, but we haven't, you know, again, there's not, not one piece of legislation yet that, that reflects that. But similarly, you know, would you have ever thought that in a bipartisan way, Congress would come together to insist that Trump get out of Yemen? No. Never, no. right? And the idea that Republicans would sign on to that, I mean, given the sort of taboo around the Saudi relationship and and which was, you know, again, never really reflected on critically. It was just this kind of knee-jerk, oh, you know, and it's like, wait, no, we're actually kind of energy independent now. We're not, like, the the circumstances in which that relationship was forged and those habits were formed is not the circumstance we're in there. We need to, you know, (laughs) take a fresh look. And members of Congress have taken a fresh look, in part because they hear from their, their constituents and they see images of emaciated children because of the Saudi blockade um, or other dimensions of the war, including Houthi abuses. And they just say, enough. Like, we, right. we, should not, we should be part of the diplomatic solution to this, but not to perpetuating this conflict. So, so you, there's, there are, again, a lot of very dark trends. And I think that the fact of the United States retreat and the fact of us creating confusion about whether we're even on the side of human rights globally really compounds that sense of an unmoored planet right now. But one of the themes of my book is this idea of shrink the change that, you know, if you feel you have to tackle the whole problem, all of climate change, yeah. all of global yeah, displacement, yeah. all of conflict, like forget about it. You're not going to get out of bed in the morning. You're just I'm, If you're me, you're going to watch SportsCenter all day uh-huh. and, you know, in, in the loop and SportsCenter to baseball tonight to SportsCenter <laughs> to baseball tonight. And, and that's not going to be very productive. But if you Try to figure out what is your slice. You know, are, you know, if you if you're mad that, about Trump's Muslim ban, and now that he's contemplating reducing the number of refugees who come into this country even further, you can be mad, and you should be mad, and you should call your congressman, and and you should above all activate for 2020 to get a whole <laughs> different commander in chief in the job and a wholly different set of individuals in Washington. Yes. But also, remember, refugees are still coming to this country and are living in our communities and are arriving at airports, granted many fewer, a quarter of those that that would have arrived in the last year of the Obama administration, but they're arriving in the least hospitable climate that refugees have ever really arrived in probably since the Second World War. And one has a chance as a tutor or somebody who drops off bed linens (laughs) or as somebody who drives that individual to a a job interview or, you know, you name it, there's, there's always something you can do. Right. That's great advice. It's a great place to end it. Shrink the change people. There's so much great stuff in this book in education of an idealist. There's the Ebola chapter. There's the friendship uh, you had with Vitaly Cherkin, the Russian ambassador to the UN, which that could be a movie. There's your foreign trips. There's cast being, Funny and wise, I cannot recommend it enough. Samantha, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. Great to see you. Great to see you. (laughs) Thank you again to Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. Thank you to Kelly Magsman. And thank you to Samantha Power for joining the show today. A lot going on. Ben will be back in studio next week. And uh, thanks again for tuning in. Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. 
It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nara Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week. 